0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources, This one's being recorded on the 11th of August for the listening week that begins the 12th. Your reader's name is Susan Shiree. Beginning with a print article from the Wall Street Journal, August 7th edition. Memoriam, renowned civil rights scholar mentored Obama. This is written by Ginger Adams Otis. Harvard law professor and civil rights lawyer Charles J. Ogletree, Jr., who counted former President Barack Obama among his many mentees, died Friday. He was 70 years old. Ogletree was a legal theorist who rose to international prominence for his work championing racial equality and social justice. His clients ranged from Anita Hill, as she testified before the Senate as a witness in confirmation hearings for then-Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, to performer Tupac Shakur, whom he represented as both a criminal and civil defense lawyer. Ogletree disclosed his Alzheimer's diagnosis in 2016, and he soon became a spokesperson for the disease to help spread awareness about the importance of early diagnosis and treatment. The most important thing is not to be afraid to talk about it, because talking about it will encourage other people to open up, he said in a 2017 interview with Alzheimer's Association, a Chicago based nonprofit dedicated to helping those with the disease. At Harvard, Ogletree served as a professor and mentor to generations of law students, including Obama, who sometimes stayed with his family at Ogletree's home on Martha's Vineyard. During his presidency, Michelle and I are heartbroken to hear about the passing of our friend Charles Ogletree. He was an advocate for social justice, an incredible professor, and a mentor to many, including us, the former president said on social media Saturday. Ogletree, born in California, attended Stanford University before moving to Harvard Law School, where he graduated in 1978. Ogletree became a lecturer at Harvard Law in 1984 after previously serving as Deputy Director of the District of Columbia Public Defender Service, according to an obituary published by Harvard on Saturday. He was named a Professor of Law in 1993. In 2005, Ogletree launched the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice at Harvard Law named in tribute to the civil rights lawyer who created the litigation campaign that eventually resulted in the landmark decision of Brown v. Board of Education. Ogletree also founded the Criminal Justice Institute, where law students are trained to represent needy defendants in Boston. He retired from the law school in 2020. In 2022, Ogletree's family donated his legal papers to Harvard Law School. Ogletree also dedicated himself to seeking justice for the survivors and descendants of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, during which as many as 300 people were killed and hundreds of homes and businesses were destroyed. In 2003, Ogletree assembled a team to represent the riot survivors and argued for reparations for those whose livelihoods had been destroyed. Ogletree also wrote several books on race and justice. Next article comes from the New York Times, August 3rd edition, written by Carl Zimmer. Enslaved African Americans in Maryland linked to 42,000 living relatives. The analysis marks the first time historical DNA has been used to trace the descendants and distant cousins of enslaved people, said researchers. A construction team working on a highway expansion in Maryland in nineteen seventy nine discovered human remains on the grounds of an eighteenth century ironworks. Eventually, archaeologists uncovered thirty five graves in a cemetery where enslaved people had been buried. In the first effort of its kind, researchers now have linked DNA from twenty seven African Americans buried in the cemetery to nearly 42,000 living relatives. Almost 3,000 of them are so closely related that some people might be direct descendants. Henry Louise Gates, Jr., an historian at Harvard University and an author of the study published on Thursday in the journal Science, said that the project marked the first time that historical DNA had been used to connect enslaved African Americans to living people. Dr. Gates said, the history of black people was intended to be a dark, unlit cave. You're bringing light into this cave. In an accompanying commentary, Fatima Jackson, an anthropologist at Howard University, wrote that the research was also significant because the local community in Maryland worked alongside geneticists and archaeologists. This is the way that this type of research should be performed, Dr. Jackson wrote. The cemetery was located at a former ironworks called the Catocton Catoctin, catoctin pardon me, I'm not sure Furnace, which started operating in seventeen seventy-six. That's spelled K pardon me C A T O C T I N catoctin, catoctin. For its first five decades, enslaved African Americans carried out most of the work, including chopping wood for charcoal and crafting items like kitchen pans and shell casings used in the Revolutionary War. Elizabeth Comer, an archaeologist and the president of the Katotkin Furnace Historical Society, said that some of the workers were most likely skilled in ironworking before being forced into slavery. When you're stealing these people from their village in Africa and bringing them to the United States, you were bringing people who had a background in iron technology, she said. Upon their discovery, some of the remains were taken to the Smithsonian for curation. In 2015, the Historical Society and the African American Resources, Cultural and Heritage Society in Frederick, Maryland, organized a closer look. Smithsonian researchers documented the toll that hard labor at the furnace took on the enslaved people. Some bones had high levels of metals like zinc, which workers inhaled in the the furnace fumes. Teenagers suffered damage to their spines from hauling heavy loads. The identities of the buried African- Americans were a mystery, so mrs comer Miss Comer pardon me, looked through diaries of local ministers for clues. She assembled a list of two hundred and seventy-one people, almost all of whom were known only by a first name. One family of freed African Americans she discovered supplied charcoal to the furnace operators. From that list, Miss Comer has managed to trace one family of enslaved workers to living people and one family of freed African Americans to another set of descendants. At Harvard, researchers extracted DNA from samples of the cemetery bones. Genetic similarities among 15 of the buried people revealed that they belonged to five families. One family consisted of a mother laid alongside her two sons. Following Smithsonian guidelines, the researchers made the genetic sequences public in June of 2022. They then developed a method to reliably compare historical DNA to the genes of living people. Adwin Harney, a former graduate student at Harvard, continued the genetic research after she joined the DNA testing company 23andMe, focusing on the DNA of 9.3 million customers who had volunteered to participate in research efforts. Dr. Harney and her colleagues looked for long stretches of DNA that contained identical variants found in the DNA of the Catoctin Furnace individuals. These stretches reveal a shared ancestry. Closer relatives share longer stretches of genetic material and more of them researchers found 41,799 people in the 23andMe database, with at least one stretch of matching DNA. But a vast majority of those people were only distant cousins who shared common ancestors with the enslaved people. That person might have lived several generations before the Catoctin, Catoctin individual, or hundreds of thousands of years before, said Dr. Harney. The researchers also found that the people buried at the Catoctin furnace mostly carried ancestry from two groups, the Wolof, who live today in Senegal and Gambia in West Africa, and the Congo, who now live 2,000 miles away in Angola and the Democratic Republic of Congo. About a quarter of the individuals in the cemetery had only African ancestry. DNA from the rest typically showed traces of ancestry from Britain, the legacy of white men who raped black women, as the authors noted in their study. Most of the living people with links to the furnace reside in the United States. Almost 3,000 people had especially long stretches of matching DNA, which could mean that they are direct descendants or can trace their ancestry to cousins of the Katotkin Furnace workers. A strong concentration of these close relatives is in Maryland, Dr. Gates noted, that continuity contrasts with the Great Migration, which brought millions of African Americans out of the South in the early 20th century. Dr. Gates said, the thing about Maryland is that it's a border state. What this means is that a lot of people didn't leave, which is quite interesting. In advance of the publication of their paper, the researchers shared the results with the two families that Miss Comer identified through her own research as well as with the African American Resources, Cultural, and Heritage Society. Andy Kill, a spokesman for 23andMe, said that the company was willing to share genetic results with relatives who participated in the new study. So far, the company hasn't been asked. But 23andMe does not have plans to notify the thousands of other customers who have a connection to the enslaved people of the Katotkin Furnace. When customers consent for their DNA to be used for research, the data is stripped of their identities to protect their privacy. Mr. Kill said, We still have work to do on thinking about the best way to do that, but it's something we would like to do at some point. Jada Ben Torres, a genetic anthropologist at Vanderbilt University who was not involved in the research, said rushing out the results would be a mistake. To take this process slowly gives us time to think about what the different repercussions might be, she said, in terms of opening these boxes and looking in and finding answers that we didn't even know we had questions about. The Catoctin Furnace is only one of many African-American burial grounds scattered across the country. Alondra Nelson, a social scientist at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, said, that similar studies could be carried out with the remains found in them, so long as scientists partner with the people caring for the cemeteries. If these kinds of projects go forward, it is going to require researchers to have a real engagement with these well-established communities, said Dr. Nelson. With a similar theme, we turn to this one from The Conversation, which was posted August 6th. How Black Americans Combated Racism from Beyond the Grave. This is written by David B. Parker, professor of history at Kennesaw State University. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution recently published a story about a black cemetery in Buckhead, a prosperous Atlanta community. The cemetery broke ground almost two centuries ago in 1826 as the graveyard of Piney Grove Baptist Church. The church has been gone for decades. The cemetery now sits on the property of a townhouse development. It is overgrown with most of its 300 plus graves unmarked. The article describes how some of the buried descendants and family members are trying to get the property owner to clean up and take care of the cemetery. Audrey Collins is one of those descendants. Her grandmother, Lenora Powell Thomas is buried there and a photograph of her grandmother's headstone accompanied the article. The headstone is not one of those polished markers that you are probably used to seeing. It is small, perhaps 18 inches tall. It has a rough, poured concrete base with a plaster inset, which includes the name of the funeral home, the name of Collins's grandmother, and the date of her death. Her name reads, Mrs. Lenora Thomas. Those first three letters, Mrs., might be the most important part on the headstone. The courtesy titles Mr., Mrs., and Miss rarely appear on headstones. Usually it is just the first and last name. But here they serve an important function, reminding viewers of how black Americans came up with creative ways to retain their dignity and weather the dehumanizing effects of racism unworthy of honorifics. In September 1951, the Savannah Tribune, a black newspaper, complained about a couple of items that had recently appeared in the white press. One was a report of a white woman who was convicted of, quote, operating and maintaining a lewd house. The newspapers put Mrs. before her name. The second item was an announcement of the principals in the city's colored schools, the names of the female principals were given without the courtesy titles of Miss or Misses. The difference was literally black and white. When you hear about life in the Jim Crow South, you might think of segregated schools, city buses, and lunch counters. But subtler su- slights—pardon me subtler slights were part of everyday life. White Southerners refused to refer to African Americans with the courtesy titles Mister, Mrs., or Miss depriving them of that dignity. In the late 1970s, Benjamin Mays, president of Atlanta's Morehouse College, recounted how Mr., Mrs., and Miss were signs of social equality. They didn't call you that, he said. This denial of black dignity was pervasive. A 1935 study of 28 southern white newspapers found none that used courtesy titles for black Americans. In a 1964 article, the Atlanta Daily World noted that in the telephone book, Miss or Mrs. appeared before the names of white women. For black women, it was just Susie Smith or Jenny Davis. Only in the 1960s did this begin to change. Mary Hamilton, a civil rights activist, was arrested at a demonstration in Gadsden, Alabama, in 1963. In the courtroom, the prosecutor asked her a question, "'addressing her as Mary. "'I won't respond,' said Hamilton, "'until you call me Miss Hamilton,' "'which is how he had been addressing white women on the stand. "'The judge ordered her to answer the question, "'and when she refused, "'he sentenced her to a few days in jail for contempt of court.' Her appeal reached the Supreme Court, which ruled that judges and lawyers do have to use Miss and other honorifics for black witnesses, just as they do for white people. Dignity in Death In the 1940s, black funeral directors in Atlanta came up with a way to combat this dehumanization. Grave markers that anointed their dead with the courtesy titles that white society had denied them. There are hundreds of headstones like Mrs. Thomas's in older black cemeteries in the Atlanta area. Most of those markers were made by Eldrin Bailey, an artist who worked in concrete and plaster. They are beautiful in their simplicity, and they all clearly say Mr., Mrs., or Miss.' These grave markers were sold as part of a funeral package, so they each bear the name of one of a dozen or so African-American funeral homes in Atlanta. Hanley, Cox Brothers, Ivy Brothers, Hogabrooks, Sellers, Murdoch, and others. One historian noted that black funeral directors not only regularly participated in the fight for racial equality, but also made significant contributions to the cause. That was certainly true of Geneva Hagebrooks, who established the Hagebrooks Funeral Home in 1929. She was active in the Atlanta Negro Voters League, and she supported the Negro Motorist Green Book. In 1953, the Atlanta chapter of the NAACP honored her for the valuable work she has done locally and nationally. I Do not know who came up with the idea of using honorifics in these markers, perhaps it was Mrs. Hoggabrooks, whose funeral home appears on some of the oldest. In any case, I believe they are worth preserving and remembering as they restored in death a sense of dignity to people had been pardon me a sense of dignity to people who had been denied it in life, Moving to international news to the difficulties currently happening in Niger. This, by the Associated Press, was posted on August 11th, coming via the Griot. Tensions rise as West African nations prepare to send troops to restore democracy in Niger. Niger, an impoverished nation of some 25 million, was seen as one of the last hopes to partner with Western nations to beat back a jihadi insurgency. Nyami, Niger. Tensions are escalating between Niger's new military regime and the West African Regional Bloc that has ordered the deployment of troops to restore Niger's flailing democracy. The Bloc, called ECOWAS, E-C-O-W-A-S, Said on Thursday it had directed a standby force to restore constitutional order in Niger after its Sunday deadline to reinstate ousted President Mohamed Bazoum had expired. Hours earlier, two Western officials told the United, pardon me, told the Associated Press that Niger's junta had told a top U.S. diplomat that they would kill Bazoum if neighboring countries attempted any military intervention to restore his rule. It's unclear when or where the forces will be de- permit me It's unclear when or where the force will deploy and which countries from the 15 member bloc would contribute to it Conflict experts say it would likely comprise some 5000 troops led by Nigeria and could be ready within weeks After the ECOWAS meeting neighboring Ivory Coast's president Alassane Kwatara Oh, no, that's not a cue, pardon me. Owatara said his country would take part in the military operation along with Nigeria and Benin. Ivory Coast will provide a battalion and has all the financial arrangements. We are determined to install Bazoum in his position. Our objective is peace and stability in the sub region, Owatara said on state television. Niger, an impoverished com- country of some twenty five million people was seen as one of the last hopes for Western nations to partner with in beating back a jihadi insurgency linked to al Qaeda and the Islamic state group that's ravaged the reason- region. Pardon me, France and the United States have more than two thousand five hundred military personnel in Niger and together with other European partners have poured millions. Pardon me, that's hundreds of millions of dollars into propping up its military. The junta responsible for spearheading the coup led by General Abdurahamini Abdurham Pardon me, led by General Abdurahami Chani has exploited anti French settlement. Pardon me Boy, I should start over. The junta responsible for spearheading the coup led by General Abdurhani Chiani has exploited anti-French sentiment among the population to shore up support. Nigerians in the capital, Niamey on Friday said Ikoas wasn't in touch with the reality on the ground and it shouldn't intervene. It is our business, not theirs. They don't even know the reason why the coup happened in Niger, said Achirau. Harouna Albasi a resident forgive my mispronunciations Bazoum was not abiding by the will of the people he said hundreds of people marched toward the french military base in niamey on friday waving russian flags and screaming down with france many were young including children all chanting that the french should go Also Friday, the African Union expressed strong support for ECOWAS's decision and called on the junta to urgently halt the escalation with the regional organization. It also called for the immediate release of Bazoum. An African Union meeting to discuss the situation in Niger, expected on Saturday, was postponed. On Thursday night after the summit, France's foreign ministry said it supported all conclusions adopted. US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said his country appreciated the determination of ECOWAS to explore all options for the peaceful resolution of the crisis and would hold the junta accountable for the safety and security of President Bazoum. However, he did not specify whether the US supported the deployment of troops. The mutinous soldiers that ousted Bazoum more than 2 weeks ago have entrenched themselves in power appear close to dialogue, closed to dialogue, and have refused to release the president. Representatives of the Junta told U.S. Under Secretary of State Victoria Nuland of the threat to Basum's life during her visit to the country this week, a Western military official said. A U.S. official confirmed that account, also speaking on condition of anonymity. The threat to kill Basum is grim, said Alexander Thurston. Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Cincinnati, there have been unwritten rules about, until now about how overthrown presidents will be treated, and violence against Bazoum would evoke some of the worst coups of the past, he said. Human Rights Watch said Friday that it had spoken to Bazoum, who said that his 20-year-old son was sick with a serious heart condition and has been refused access to a doctor. The president said he hasn't had electricity for nearly 10 days and isn't allowed to see family, friends, or bring supplies into the house. It's unclear if the threat on Bazoum's life would change ECOWAS's decision to intervene militarily. It might give them pause or push the parties closer to dialogue, but the situation has entered uncharted territory, say analysts. An ECOWAS invasion to restore constitutional order into a country of Niger's size and population would be unprecedented, said Nate Allen, an associate professor at the African Center for Strategic Studies. Niger has a fairly large and well-trained army that, if it actively resisted an invasion, could pose significant problems for ECOWAS. This would be a very large and significant undertaking, he said. While the region oscillates between mediation and preparing for war, Nigerians are suffering the impact of harsh economic and travel sanctions imposed by ECOWAS. Before the coup, more than four million Nigerians were reliant on humanitarian assistance and the situation could become more dire, said Luis Aubin, the UN resident coordinator in Niger. The situation is alarming, We'll see an exponential rise and more people needing more humanitarian assistance, she said, adding that the closure of land and air borders makes it hard to bring aid into the country, and it's unclear how long the current stock will last. All pardon me, aid groups are battling restrictions on multiple fronts. ECOA sanctions have banned the movement of goods between Niger and the member countries, making it hard to bring in materials. The World Food Program has some 30 trucks stuck at the Benin border, unable to cross. Humanitarians are also trying to navigate restrictions within the country as the Junta has closed the airspace, making it hard to get clearance to fly the humanitarian planes that transport goods and personnel to hard-hit areas. Flights are being cleared on a case-by-case basis, and there's irregular access to fuel. The UN has asked ECOWAS to make exceptions to the sanctions and is speaking to Niger's foreign ministry about doing the same within the country. Next, some opinion pieces about the recent brawl that was um, posted on many social media sites that happened in Alabama. And here we have from theroot.com. How a Good Times Alabama Brawl remix captured something special. There have been many Montgomery Brawl memes, but the Good Times meme got black people everywhere sharing. This is by Jessica Washington. It's in reference to a meme on social media using a theme from an old TV show. Maybe it's those last words. Need a Friend, from the theme song of the classic television show Good Times that connected with so many of us this week. The, Montgomery Uprising, as it's been nicknamed by the Internet, has clearly made an impact. Millions of social media users have posted videos and images dissecting every moment of the Alabama Riverfront brawl. But one highly shared video has managed to snag everyone's attention, This week, artist James Charles Morris remixed a video of the Riverside altercation with the theme song from Good Times. Then there was this poetic tweet, My soul is rested, my heart is full, I have a Denzel glory tear rolling down my cheek. And that tweet came from Ohio State University history professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries, we caught up with Jeffries, who said it struck a nerve for a reason. For a reason, pardon me, it encapsulates everything that drew the black community to this moment. Explains Jeffries. The video starts off with the Black River boat worker, highlighting the brother doing his job, as the star of the production. Jeffries says the caption truly highlights the dark absurdity of that situation. All he is doing is his job, says Jeffries. But that didn't prevent him from being the victim of a potential lynch mob. The fact that instead of watching another George Floyd video, we saw black people fighting back in mutual defense resonated with people, said Jeffries. The video also highlights other characters from the brawl, including UNC with the chair, the aunties, the Braz, and even Michael Evans Phelps. One of the funniest things about the video is the naming of the young brother who dives into the Alabama River, says Jeffries. The fact that he sees his co-worker being assaulted and it pisses him off so much that he has to get there. It's a rejection of this deeply rooted racist stereotype, black people not having unity, and also not being able to swim. What we're witnessing in this video is of the incident is a show of black solidarity and resistance, says Jeffries. It was the willingness of these folks to pick up arms in self-defense, and it's one we don't hear about because of the media's bias to nonviolence, he said, and we have this symbolically with the chair. The choice of the Good Times theme song can't be ignored either, said Jeffries. There's a soulful connection to Good Times. I grew up on Good Times, and the theme song is arguably one of the top theme songs in television history and one of the top theme songs in black history. One more on that brawl. Why old-timey, no-guns, Montgomery brawl fascinated us. This was written by Wayne Washington, still coming from The Root, published on the ninth. Writer explains that white and black brawlers got that butt tapped, but they lived to see another day. I'm not going to lie, the Montgomery melee hit me a certain kind of way. Seeing a solitary black man defending himself against one and then a small horde of white men made me angry. He had simply been trying to do his job in an environment when others clearly didn't want him to do that or would not allow him to do that. Then there was pride, pride in seeing him hold his own for a bit, pride in seeing other black people coming to this black man's defense, pride in Scuba Gooding Jr., the young black man swimming to shore to lend what assistance he could. Couldn't we do with more solidarity? Couldn't we say more often, reach out, I'll be there? I know that sounds trite. I know it's a Four Tops song. I know I'm among a quickly dwindling population of old heads who think the Four Tops are still cool. And God knows I don't want to condone violence. Far, far too much of that already. But in the midst of those feelings, in the midst of laughing at the inspiring, funny, sad, frightening memes, a friend noticed something else about what happened in Montgomery, and she described it as old-timey. I immediately understood. It was exactly that, a throwback to a time when we didn't settle our problems with an AK. You didn't roll up on some school kids and commit mass murder. You put your dukes up you got your ass whipped, or you whipped some ass. Again, I'm not advocating violence, but I am advocating a turn away from the accessories that would have turned a most unfortunate melee into a potential potential, pardon me, mass murder scene. If even one person there had a firearm, no one could have made a meme over what happened in Montgomery. We'd be awaiting funeral coverage. If someone had an automatic weapon, one that could fire multiple bullets with a single pull of the trigger, we'd have witnessed an opening phase of what white supremacists have long dreamed of, a race war. This is not a war that would or could ever be fair. Black people are far outnumbered in this country. MLK didn't advocate nonviolence simply because violence is morally wrong. He advocated nonviolence because he could count. What we need to do when we stop wondering who's been arrested and how they'll be punished if convicted, and just how pissed off Scuba was when he jumped into that water, is ponder how it is that a simple request from one black man morphed into a racial melee. What we also need to do is consider, at least in this case, that our differences might have resulted in hurt feelings in more ways than one, but it didn't devolve into mass carnage, and that's a good thing. Next article comes from The Griot. It says just staff here for author. It was published August 11th, and we're tapping back into news from Florida's new curriculum. Retired black professor 79, part of the group that created Florida's new curriculum. Conservative William Barclay Allen slammed Vice President Kamala Harris for, quote, following a script in the name of an ideological agenda after she denounced the new directives. A conservative retired black professor is a prominent member of the group that drafted Florida's new, perplexing teaching directives, which address how slavery might have given enslaved people valuable skills. William Barclay Allen, 79, has taken on the role of having the public face of the state's initiatives to reform the way educators teach black history. According to the Washington Post, the controversial guidelines supported by Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis also include discussions of how mob violence against black people included, quote, acts of violence perpetuated against and by African Americans. None of the long-standing Florida Department of Education members spoke at a virtual training course for teachers hosted by its African American Task Force, They protested the alterations, about which they said no one consulted them. One resigned in protest, claiming he was disgusted by the revised curriculum. In an email conversation with the Post, Allen stated that the 13-member working group operated with a collaborative consensual process, and the result is a product with no single author, adding that there was no dissent he advised instructors to teach the whole picture during the virtual training session on Monday. Using an example of the nine students who integrated Little Rock's Central High School in 1957, he pointed to the fact that some of the same Arkansas National Guard troops who blocked students from entering helped escort them inside once the force was federalized. But the Little Rock Nine's complete history also involves months of intimidation and threats, and their fear of the National Guard personnel. Given the stop-woke law that DeSantis enacted last year, which forbids classroom debate about racism that can make children uncomfortable, Florida educators say it is unclear how much they can teach about such occurrences. If we can convey no other message to our teachers, that's the message we must convey, said Allen, that the story is never just one way. The former government and political science professor has several times been selected by conservative Republicans for prominent posts, including when President Ronald Reagan appointed him to the National Council of the Humanities in 1984 and three years later to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. A Florida native, in the 1960s, Allen was among students who integrated Fernandina Beach High School. He later taught at public and private institutions in Washington, D.C., California, Colorado, and Michigan, and wrote or co-authored over half a dozen books. He's among the cadre that includes Candace Owens, Herschel Walker, Ben Carson, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, a growing group of black conservatives who frequently speak out against liberal policies and support Republican politics. Allen, who came under fire in 1989 for titling a speech, Blacks? Animals? Homosexuals? What is a minority? Has denounced affirmative action on numerous occasions. While serving as the Virginia Higher Education Council leader, he even questioned the function of historically black colleges and universities. He slammed Vice President Kamala Harris for following a script in the name of an ideological agenda, DeSantis also backs the State Education Department's decision to deny a new Advanced Placement African American Studies course, which is just one of many conflicts in which the department is currently involved. There was also controversy surrounding the AP Psychology course's content on the sexual orientation and gender identity, prompting administrators to block the class before announcing later they would allow it. On Thursday night, at a town hall gathering of about 200 people, parents and community members expressed their outrage and concern over the curriculum changes and questioned how they were made. Miami-Dade School Board member Steve Gallen III said the shared ideology and shared agenda of Allen and the other participants made the working group DS assembled problematic. Gallon encouraged the audience to vote in every election and attend school board meetings to change the laws that produced the new curriculum. He continued by saying that parents must make sure their children realize slavery was one of the most horrific, brutal, divisive, destructive, evil experiences this world has ever known, asserting one cannot afford to rely solely on the education system to teach children. Gallon said, The foundation of their thinking needs to be called into question. To marginalize slavery, to misinform the facts of our history. And published on the 10th, written by Candace McDuffie from The Root. Slavery was good. DeSantis suspends Florida's only black woman state attorney. Florida politicians have called Monique Worrell's suspension a political hit job. On Tuesday, Ron, slavery was good, DeSantis, suspended Monique Worrell, Florida's only black female state attorney. DeSantis, who is currently vying for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, announced Worrell's suspension stemmed from, quote, neglect of duty. DeSantis, who has used his governorship to constantly attack marginalized and disenfranchised communities, said that Worrell was too soft on criminals. He cited her failure to charge a teen accused of shooting and killing a nine-year-old girl and two more people in a gang-related incident last year. However, Worrell explained that witnesses who testified in the case gave muddled accounts and could not identify the suspect in a photo lineup since the gunman was wearing a mask during the incident. DeSantis announced news of the suspension at a press conference where he was accompanied by two local sheriffs, though neither serve a county that intersects with Worrell's jurisdiction. During the event, one of the sheriffs held up a photoshopped sign that turned Worrell into a disrespectful meme which showed her in a burning cartoon room with the phrase, This is fine, above her head. Worrell held her own press conference and stated that she plans on fighting back. I am a duly elected state attorney for the Ninth Judicial Circuit, she commented, and nothing done by a weak dictator can change that. Worrell served the liberal areas of Orange and Osceola counties and won 67% of the vote to obtain her position. Florida Democratic Party chairwoman Nikki Freed dubbed the suspension a political hit job However, in a press release, DeSantis claimed that Worrell's practices and policies have far too often allowed violent criminals to escape the full consequences of their criminal conduct, thereby endangering the innocent civilians of Orange and Osceola counties. Next, we have some articles in honor of hip-hop celebrating, or marking, its birthday officially today, the 11th. This comes from the Wall Street Journal edition on Friday, August 11th. Hip-hop stars have rewritten the rules of music and business. Written by Neil Shaw. No music genre has celebrated the power of money, quite like hip-hop, in the 1980s. Run DMC turned a song about their favorite sneakers into an unprecedented seven-figure endorsement deal with Adidas. 50 Cent partnered with vitamin water two decades later and won an equity stake, not just cash. In the mid-2000s, Jay-Z became president and CEO of Def Jam Recordings, making the boardroom cooler than ever. Lil Wayne dumped unofficial albums on fans, anticipating the new ways they would consume music in the streaming age, and Cardi B started rapping about her money moves. Hip hop's birthday marks a half century since the DJ named Cool. Pardon me. The sunlight is in my eyes. Pardon me. Um, hip hop's birthday marks a half century since, since a DJ named Cool Herc played a party on August eleventh, 1973, in the Bronx and helped create a new sound. Since then, hip hop has become America's most popular genre, not just in overall music listening, where it reigns over all styles, but in the way it has embedded itself in the sounds of everything else, from country's Morgan Wallen and pop's Lana Del Rey to Latin music's Bad Bunny and K-pop's BTS. Hip-hop has especially transformed the way the music industry does business. It changed how musicians earn income, how producers construct songs, and how labels market and sell albums. It bred generations of groundbreaking rappers turned business people who reinvented the pop music machine. Today, pragmatism is valued over preciousness. And it has worked. In the first half of 2023, hip-hop, including R&B, accounted for 25.9% of U.S. recorded music consumption, 26.3% if you include Bad Bunny, according to data tracker Luminate. The second highest is rock at 19.8%. They weren't tethered to a rule book, says Lyre Lyre Cohen, who oversaw the pioneering Def Jam hip-hop label before selling it in 1999 in one of the genre's most historic deals. He is now the global head of music at YouTube and Google. Rap artists and executives made things up that actually served us well, as opposed to not asking the simple questions because it's how things are supposed to be. Even as rap's dominance has started to ease on the billboard charts in recent years, the takeaways from its success are undeniably woven into the music industry. It's a hip-hop world. Everyone else is just living in it. Good to sell out. Unlike generations of rockers, rappers have long thought about their business positioning themselves better for a world where it's harder to make money than from just music while rock acts from the Beatles to the Sto- pardon me from the Beatles to the Strokes saw maximizing commercial opportunities as crass many young hip hop stars facing discrimination and fewer economic opportunities wanted to cash in hip hop definitely broke down that barrier says Tunji Balogun, Def Jam's current CEO and chairman. The only rule was to be successful. When Jay-Z couldn't find a major label to sign him, he launched his own. He co-founded Rockefeller Records in the mid-1990s. Ten years later, he became the head of Def Jam, an executive power move that inspired a young Balogun. Pardon me, it was the first time the executive felt like part of the culture and not just a suit, he says. Rolagun well, was an aspiring rapper and a first-generation Nigerian-American whose parents wanted him to be a lawyer or doctor. But seeing Jay-Z take over, he realized pursuing the music business could still build his career and make his mother happy. Eventually, he would work closely with a young Kendrick Lamar and sign or help sign Childish Gambino, Brockhampton, Khalid Seza, and Steve Lacey. Now he's one of the record industry's few black label chiefs. Jay-Z further popularized the notion that selling out was cashing in. Instead of making money purely from albums and singles, rappers diversified their income sources by tapping ancillary revenue streams such as endorsement deals that give them a cushion when the album sales era ended. While some rock and pop acts embraced commercials and corporate sponsorships, it was hip-hop artists who made it normal to look beyond music, tickets, and t-shirts for revenue. Even today, Jay-Z hasn't stopped preaching the money-making gospel. On his most recent album, 2017's 444, he advises fans to invest in real estate early and cultivate generational wealth owning your music. Rappers have also been ahead of the curve on the benefits of owning your masters or sound recording copyrights. One of the best examples is Percy Miller, the rapper best known as Master P. Traditionally recording artists such as Master P would have taken an advance in exchange for letting labels own their sound recordings. The hope was the label would transform the artist into a superstar and once the music generated sufficient revenue to cover the label's costs, artists would share in the royalties. But because rappers and small independent rap, me, rap labels enjoyed less institutional support from the mainstream record industry, they were more willing to go it alone, or at least do things differently. In the 1990s, the New Orleans bred Masterpiece started a record store in the Bay Area, and then turned it into a small but thriving independent label, No Limit Records. Instead of signing a traditional major label deal as an artist, he signed a distribution deal in 1995 with the larger Priority Records, where No Limit was retained, pardon me, where they retained ownership of its master recordings. With Priority's help, No Limit saw astounding successes in the late 1990s, with the label reaping much of the rewards thanks to its master's. Masterpiece signed Snoop Dogg, exploring other business ventures and has since become seen as a paragon of autonomy in hip-hop. Such rappers have helped change the power dynamic between labels and artists. In the 1990s, members of the Wu-Tang Clan secured the right in their record contract to strike solo deals with different labels, an unusual move that effectively made a swath of the industry support the entire group. Cash Money Records, the home of a teenage Lil Wayne, kept its master recordings and yet signed an unusually favorable and lucrative distribution deal with the Universal Music Group. In the night, pardon me, in the 2010s, Chance the Rapper flaunted his independence from music labels, a song machine. For decades, hip-hop producers have hunted for rhythmic beats and ear-grabbing instrumentals to make musical beds for rappers to rhyme over. Today, the sonic foundations of pop songs owe much to these methods. Hip-hop's influence traces back to the 1960s when a teenage DJ Hollywood talked in rhyme over the intro to a record. Neither his DJing nor his proto-rapping was considered musicianship. That shift happened with DJ Kool Herc and Grandmaster Flash, whose technical innovations, for example chaining instrumental breaks in songs to create a continuous loop for dancers, turned DJs into artists and composers. Rapping and accompanying entertainment with roots in Jamaican toasting over reggae music eventually displaced DJing at the center of what became known as hip-hop music. Raps became songs, and then, with Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons's Def Jam in the mid-1980s, three-minute commercially-friendly pop-like songs. Sampling, or using a piece of a pre-existing record recording pardon me, in a new song, expanded the artistic possibilities by letting artists make new tracks over old ones. These music production innovations changed the way top 40 hits were made. It's no longer the case that one party comes up with the lyrics and another finds a tune, Today's pop tracks are often built around a producer assembling a musical foundation of beats and melodies. Then, so-called top-line elements like vocal melodies are added. In its very constructions, pop music along with reggaeton, Afrobeats, k-pop, and even some country now speaks the language of hip-hop. More is more. Mixtapes have been around since the days of DJs passing out cassettes, but in the 2000s, Lil Wayne turned them into something you could turbocharge your career with. Back then, mixtapes weren't sold commercially or officially, which meant they could be more casual and distributed without legal vetting. You could sample whoever you wanted without fear of legal reprisal. Lil Wayne, building on 50 Cent, used mixtapes as a savvy marketing tool to create demand. After hitting a rough patch career-wise, he let loose a barrage of tapes that let him flex his skills, rap over already famous beats, and superserve his hungriest fans. Today, Lil Wayne mixtapes with Dedication 2 and DJ Drama are considered among his best work. At the time, major label executives weren't happy with Lil Wayne's firehouse of unofficial content, but he ended up reviving his career and setting an example for generations of rappers. Here's why mixtapes were needed. Many major labels, which specialized in getting songs on the radio, didn't have the infrastructure and institutional knowledge to connect rappers with fans on the street. Mixtapes filled that gap. Mixtapes were an underground railroad of communication, says Steve Stout, founder of the record label Limited Masters. An advertising and music entrepreneur who once managed NAS and expanded the hip hop sneaker business through his deals involving Jay-Z and 50 Cent. Gucci Main Future and Young Boy Never Broke Again have all been, uh, pardon me, all have celebrated mixtape runs, though nowadays mixtapes are often commercially released on streaming services. It was mixtape culture that trained rappers to release music frequently and fans to devour it quickly, a cultural shift that prefigured the lightning-quick metabolism of the streaming era. The Power of Collaboration Kanye West, who now goes by Ye, is famous for assembling a revolving-door rap camp, every one from Nicki Minaj and Pusha T to Bon Iver, to help him make his 2010 classic My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. It's a particularly dramatic example of a central characteristic of hip-hop, intense collaboration. Most rappers work with producers. There is a system in hip-hop for old guard veterans to help rising stars by co-signing them. And the practice of sampling allows rap albums to essentially converse with prior works. Rap is radically open in ways that have helped it evolve. One reason for rappers' willingness to collaborate is that pooling resources can boost the chances for success. Despite hip-hop's reputation for braggadocio, gatekeeping, and internecine beefs, there's always been a greater common enemy bringing rappers together in the studio, racism, and underrepresentation. The overarching macro-truth was we were fighting society for our beliefs. We wanted to get all of our artists acknowledged, said Stout. For the last decade, hip-hop has been the closest thing to a blinding force in a fragmented musical world. Pardon me, that's binding force. <laughs> For most of the last decade, hip-hop has been the closest thing to a binding force in a fragmented musical world, a new lingua franca that helps entire genera—pardon me, entire genres speak to each other. Much of the music industry is hip-hop, said Jaime Krentz, president of Verve Records home of Billie Holiday and John Baptiste. It's the fabric of pop music. And that brings me to the end of our time. I might be able to do that second article on hip-hop next week, but thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC Programming is brought to you in part by Trendware, Colorado's best full-service IT-managed services and purpose-built computer device provider.